You're listening to a podcast of This Positive Life, the Body.com's growing collection of first-person stories from people living with HIV. Hi, George. Welcome to This Positive Life. Hi, how are you? Thanks for inviting me. You're welcome. Well, I guess the first question is, can you tell our readers and listeners about your personal history with HIV? How did you find out you were HIV positive? Well, the way I found out I was HIV positive, I was I had spent 27 years in active addiction. And at one time I had gotten really sick. And um, I went to the hospital, um, and um, as I was at the hospital in the emergency room, they asked me, I want to take an HIV test. And I said, sure, you know, at that time, you know, I was read about HIV, but information was, it was a gay white man's disease, so I didn't think that was affecting me. And... Um, when I did uh, get the test, it was like, okay, you got to come back in two weeks. Again, I was in active addiction, so I wasn't coming back in two weeks. So I didn't come back in two weeks. I took the test at a Fulton County Health Department. I wound up in Fulton County Jail maybe a year, a year and a half later. And um, uh, they called me out of my cell, and I came downstairs, and I thought I was going home. And there was a man in a white jacket, and he said, oh, you Mr. Burgess? And I said, yes. And he said, well, I got some news for you. And I'm like, well, get to it. I want to go home. <laughs> and he said I was HIV positive. Um, and at that time, I think I was at the best place I could have been incarcerated because I was in protective custody, protected from myself. So um, that's how I actually found out. So what were you addicted to? I was, a, uh, I was addicted to heroin for 27 years. So do you know how you got HIV? Was it drug use? I'm, I'm sure it was drug use. I've never been with a man before. Um, I uh, grew up, you know, addiction is not, like I say, a moral disease. I grew up, um, you know, not being promiscuous, not being, so um, just IV drug use. Uh, and, um, you know, I, I know vividly how I probably contracted this virus. Um, I came home one year after moving to Atlanta and a friend of mine took me into an abandoned building and reached into the wall and sheetrock and pulled out a, a, a dirty needle. It was dirtier than the Hudson River, if I can say that. But my addiction said use that needle anyway. And again, I didn't think about getting HIV. Uh, went back then, but just thought about hepatitis C or hepatitis. So I think that at that moment, if I can pinpoint, you know, um, but I've shared needles for pretty much all my active addiction. So how long do you think that you'd been living with HIV when you found out you were positive? Well, when I was diagnosed, my T-cells were already 43. So going back to with the relationship and the history of my doctor, we can say as early as 1990. Mind you, I didn't get the diagnosis until 95, 96. <laughs> so again, looking at my... T-cells, where they were at, we're looking at it as early as then. I could have been infected. And you also have hepatitis yes, C? I, I have hepatitis C also. Again, that's um, direct uh, results of IV drug use. Right now, my doctor and I are, are looking at it. You know, we are definitely a great team, and we're monitoring it. My liver enzymes are fine. I think two years ago, we was going to do the biopsy. But because of my fears of being a treatment educator and reading that... Um, 94, 96% of African Americans, the treatment does not work for them. I wasn't ready to go through the, the pain and, you know, all the, the, the challenges of the depression and everything from the treatment. So 
right now we just monitor my livers and see my liver enzymes, see where they are, and then we'll make that decision. Did you find out at the same time that you were HIV positive that you also had hepatitis C, or was it? No, no. It probably was a couple of months after that. You know, it's a really good relationship how my doctor and I uh, met. Actually, she chose me. But two months into our relationship, you know, she said, well, you have hepatitis C also. I had a lot of trauma done to me when I finally did come in. When I mean come in, I was almost murdered in the streets of Atlanta. And by that, I, w- I wound up in the emergency room, and then they put me on the floor. That's special for HIV and all infected people. So my first doctor, initial doctor, said, you have four months to live. Go and enjoy yourself. And now my current doctor was in the room at the same time, and she you know, gave him this look like, oh, how can you say that? And at that time, in 1996, the limp was going on, <clears throat> so most doctors were on call. And she said, after the limp is, please come see me. And that's how our relationship started, you know. And, you know, she invited me. And then, you know, I had all those fears and stuff like that. So I went to see her. And we've been together for this past 10, 11 years. But she she was really good for me. She's still good for me. How has your co-infection changed how you've dealt with HIV? I think the biggest thing about the co-infection that has changed me is that I'm mindful of what regimens I'm taking I'm mindful of what I'm putting in my system, you know, if things are real toxic. I'm, I'm mindful of that. I'm, I'm mindful, although I did celebrate, I just celebrated 11 years clean and sober, I think the hepatitis C in the AIDS diagnosis keeps my recovery really in place, <laughs> you know, whereas why risk your life? That's what I was doing anyway, but, you know. Going back to something you said before, you said that you were probably in the best place that you could have been to find out that you were HIV positive. Mm -hmm. What advice would you give someone who just found out that they were positive? I think the first advice is to be still because it's what we call day one. Day one can be really, really frightening, especially sitting back on the other other side of the desk and getting a diagnosis. You know, it's it's just, just to be still because, you know, your thoughts are going to race. After being still, find some support, you know, and sometimes we know that most family members are not receptive or don't understand HIV. When I told my mother, you know, I was positive, you know, she had a negative response to it. But I had to realize that she wasn't educated, you know, she had her fears. So be still, then find some support. Get into some health care where you can... um, set a game plan, and then realize that it's not a death sentence, that you could live with this. You mentioned your relationship with your mother. How have your relationships with your family and friends changed because of your diagnosis? This trip to New York has been so overwhelming, and it has really raised my T-cells. This is the first time that all four of my children have been in a room together. Never been in a room together. Because of my active addiction, you know, I've abandoned my children. In these past 10 years, 11 years of my diagnosis and um, living clean and sober, it's a whole new life. And our relationship is really, really great. And all four of my children have different mothers, (laughs) but all of them look alike and all of them are just so friendly and loving to one another. It's just an awesome thing, you know. So the relationship with my children are really great. I've met two of my grandchildren on this trip, so it's really a good thing for for me at this this moment right here is good for me. 
Do you think it's harder for African Americans to deal with an HIV diagnosis? Yes, I think African Americans have a whole lot to deal with. And you know, I waver, I go back and forth because sometimes the stereotypes will make you say, well, African Americans are poor, they're illiterate, they have drug histories, they have jail histories and stuff like that. But the reality of it, some of us do. Some of us do. So we are addressing those other issues at the same time. And then to get a HIV AIDS diagnosis, I think it's one of those, okay, what can happen next? Or, you know, one of those, I'm going to give up. With African-American women, I think it's challenging for them is because at that time, some of them, I believe, go into survival mode. I'm going to take care of my children, and I'm going to be secondary. You know, I'm going to make sure that they're okay. So they neglect their health in some ways in order to take care of their children because some of us, we know that it's not a death sentence, but we know that we're not running out of time, that the clock is on. I know that I try to get 29 hours out of a 24-hour day because I know that I want to enjoy or get everything I can get out, out of a full day. So with African-Americans living with HIV and AIDS, men and women have their different challenges. I think that you have to address those other issues, the social issues, the literacy issues, the education and stuff like that, and then try to combine them all when you start educating yourself about HIV and AIDS. Going back to your drug addiction, could you tell us a little bit more about your personal history? When did you start taking drugs? I started taking drugs. I grew up with low self-esteem. And I started drinking early because it helped my self-esteem, okay? I heard about heroin and I heard about other drugs and stuff like that. One day I came home and my brother was under the influence of heroin. And I told him he needed to go to bed and he went to bed. And the next morning my mother was screaming and hollering in the middle of the floor. And I said, what's wrong? And she said, your brother. And I touched my brother and rigor mortis had already set in. Two weeks later, I stuck my first needle in my arm. I had a curiosity what killed him. The drinking was going to help me escape this pain. So that's how it started, and it escalated through my entire life. <laughs> you know, it, it never got better. Every time I thought I had a grip on it, I, I really didn't. So, you know, that's how it started. And then, you know, it got to a point that I lived to use and used to live. Who did you take drugs with? Was it just by yourself or? Mm. Wow, this interview is really good. <laughs> I started taking drugs with my best friend. And then we had a circle, you know, we grew up and uh, it wasn't a gang, it was, was like more like little rascals. We were just friends. And that whole little circle started at the same time. So we started, you know, snorting and stuff like that. I'm feeling some pain right now because three out of the five in a circle is dead now from HIV and AIDS, from the direct results again of IV drug use, from some of them in denial and not really addressing it and taking care of what they needed to take care of. One, I knew I had to recover and then start being responsible about taking my HIV medication. So I know some of them are not here because they didn't want that. They didn't want to do that. Didn't have the energy to do that. How did you do that? So I was almost murdered in 19, 1996, June 17, 1996. 
and I went in the hospital and a doctor told me I had that four months to live. But one of the things that really, really, and I need to share this, and it's not me being, I um, had unprotective sex with the mother of my child. Never told her my status. Didn't even know how to tell her my status. Didn't even know how to disclose. And while I was in the hospital waiting to heal, I had to disclose to her and had to watch her and my son George Jr. get an HIV test. And that then, at that moment, with the combination of meeting my doctor, with the combination of meeting my earth angel, which is Mary Lynn Hemphill in Atlanta, my first social worker, first contact, I, um, I decided to live. I, de I decided to live. Once I got their results back that, that they were both negative, you know, that was one of my motivating factors, is that, one, I needed to take care of George Jr. And then, like I said, it's been a 10-year, 11-year journey to finally get all four of my children in a room together. You mentioned disclosure. How do you decide who to disclose to, when to disclose now, now that you've gotten <laughs> to that point? <laughs> I was called the poster boy of HIV and AIDS <laughs> almost one year after my acceptance. I started volunteering at AIDS Survival Project in Atlanta, Georgia. I met my mentor, Dan Dunable. We was opposite the tracks. He was white and gay. I was black and straight, but he was... He's my, I, I love him, I love him. We just buried him last year. He got me interested in volunteering and I started volunteering. Um, I met um, Terry there and, you know, I decided to educate myself about this virus. And I was diagnosed really much at the, at the right time also. I think what happened was 1996, the combination came out and I started taking the medications the way I was supposed to. I don't know if I answered your question. I started getting emotional. Start, I thought about Dan, and I apologize. It's okay. You mentioned being a straight man. How do you deal with being a straight man infected with HIV? Do you, do you find that people assume that you're gay just because you're positive? Yes, they do. They assume that I am gay. Or, you know, one of my biggest challenges in Atlanta, and I fight it all the time, is this new stigma of down low. Although it is a reality, but you you know you're looking at every man, African American man, and say, oh, he must be on a down low. You know, I work hard in the community in Atlanta. I'm one of the few heterosexual men that would stand up and talk about HIV and AIDS. You know, it's not about how they look or view me and stuff like that. It's about me saving somebody else's life. You know, I don't have to. I don't have to prove who I am. You know. It's really a shame that more heterosexual, and I can't, I'll say more heterosexual men in Atlanta or in that community would not stand up and speak about it. Um, again, there's so many stereotypes, and I think the down low is one of those new stereotypes. And when you say the down low, you mean? Men who are in relationships with females and not saying they are and having sex with men. You know, when I was growing up, it was called bisexual. Now it's this new thing down low, you know, but it has really put another stigma in the whole mix. I think at sometimes heterosexual men was about ready to come out and start talking, and no pun intended, with the down low, now they retreated to a closet.
Um, and I don't mean that in no negative way, but I think more heterosexual men should speak up. You know, I um, I love what the gay community have done as far as advocating. I love ACT UP. I love the marches. I love the protesting. I love what they do. But sometimes African Americans forget that what they did was borrow a page from Martin Luther King. He was one of the first ones to act up in our community. He was one of the first ones to march. He was the one, one of the first ones to talk about social justice. He was one of the first. So they borrowed a page. Why can't we just borrow the page back and do what we need to do? Just borrow it. Don't give it back. <laughs> just borrow it. <laughs> so you, in your activism work, you find a lot of men on the down low or not? I work with a lot of men and I think the majority, my, my primary focus is men that's in recovery, okay? I do work in a predominantly gay organization. Um, Which organization is that? AIDS Survival Project in Atlanta, Georgia. But we've always tried to not carry that banner that we are a gay white organization. We are a helpful organization. We are a resourceful organization. We are a caring organization. I always say we're small number, but big in commitment. But, you know, when you're talking about the heterosexual men, they won't come into an organization because they feel that it's a gay organization, so they will not come get help. The folks that I do work with, and I really think that, that they're on a down low, I don't question why you're in denial. I say to, you, to their own self, be true, be who you are. You know, if you're on the down low, so be it, you know. It's a waste of a T-cell to try to hide your sexual orientation. You know, it's like going to a buffet. People pick up different things at a buffet. Whatever you like at that buffet, that's what you like. I might not like it. So, you know, if you're on a down low and that's what you do, come to grips with it, come to acceptance with it, and, and, and share it with whoever your potential partner is. This way, there won't be any resentments, animosity, or, you know. So what kind of work do you do with AIDS Survival Project? <laughs> I bet you wear about nine hats, don't you? <laughs> I proud myself on being a treatment educator. I do treatment forms. I do lunch and learns. I do a lot of educational programs. Uh, I'm a pre- and post-counselor and tester. We just started, we just initiated this new program called Peer to Adhere. And it's a really one of those new concepts where we have peer counselors go into different health departments or different hospitals, private docs. And we go in, ask for a referral from the doc. And what we try to do is just do a lot of the work that their nurse would do and stuff like that as far as finding out. We do an assessment, see where they are, where their acceptance are they ready to adhere? Are they ready to go on medication? And during that assessment, we give the information back to the doc and the nurse. But at the same time, that newly diagnosed person is seeing somebody that's HIV infected or living with AIDS just like them. So they're more prone to open up and talk about it and stuff like that. We just had a really good success story where this guy was a Katrina survivor. And he came here and he found himself almost homeless. You mean here, Atlanta? Uh, in Atlanta. He found himself almost homeless. And um, we worked diligently to find him housing. And so that's what we do. You know, in recovery they have a, t- a saying, the therapeutic barrier where one addict helping another. Peer-to-peer is one of the best treatments that somebody can have. So this peer-to-peer program is really, really, really good. Yes. Living with HIV, 
Don't you get sick of talking about it and thinking about it all the time? How do you have the stamina and energy to be an activist and spend so much of your life doing that? Going back to AIDS Survivor Project, the first program manager in their library was a gentleman, and I came to volunteer one day, and he was the program manager, and he was crying, and he was in a wheelchair. And I asked him what was the matter with him, and he said, I'm so tired. He said, I live this, I breathe this, I work this, my wife works this, and she lives it, and I'm just tired. And he was early in recovery, and I was a newcomer, and I was saying, I don't care what you're going through, no matter what, do not pick up. And he did pick up. Drugs? Yes. But what happened was that, um, again, looking at people will show you what to do and what not to do. By looking at him, I knew that I didn't want to use. I knew what kind of work I wanted to do, and I was committed to it. I have friends now tell me, George, you, you done gave as much as you can give and just relax. One of my better friends, Terry, she'll say, George, just stop. Sometimes I feel like I'm like a shark in the water. You know, once I stop swimming, I will perish. So I continue swimming. You know, I continue swimming. I love service work. When I look at AIDS as an acronym, always in divine service. Always in divine space. So I like being of service. Okay. Uh, What do you think are the biggest issues that need fixing in HIV today? What do you tell people that they can do to change the situation? Well, I think the biggest thing is that everybody stop pointing fingers. There's so many, you know, you point at the politician, you're pointing at the scientists, you're pointing at the drugs, you're pointing at the pastor, you're pointing at your neighbor. Stop pointing fingers and let's try to come to the table with a dialogue where we can get to some solutions. Because of funding, um, HIV has become sometimes a cutthroat situation, you know. And while you're cutting throat and trying to get your agency funding, you're losing sight of your clients. You're getting the money for the clients, <laughs> you know. The church is one of the things whereas historically African Americans went for refuge. You know, I've spoke at churches, and every time I finish speaking, there is at least 10 folks come to me, or people come to me and say, I know somebody that's living with HIV and AIDS, Can you? but I know they're talking about themselves, that they cannot go to their pasture. You know, politicians, yes, we have to really kick ass and take names because they make it as a political game, but it's all about us living. Okay, you know, uh, they'll come and they'll listen to us, but if they can support more votes for them, you know, but after they get in office, you know, it's like, if you look at the presidential um, debates, but four years ago, Edward and them didn't know anything about HIV and AIDS. Now, this year, just watch the debate. Oh, they was armed. They did some homework. But why did they do the homework? Because they really internalized and know what's going on in America, or did they want to get some more votes? Stop, stop profiling. You know, this disease has not changed. I mean, 40,000 people are still getting affected. We are over a million people in this country. You know, that thing, I'm going to send so much money to Africa, and it's not getting there. It's really just stop pointing fingers. You know, if everybody would lift their voice, if everybody would take a step in the right direction, I think we'll be better. And what are your motives behind doing it? If your motives is just for self-centeredness and get back what you can get, then it's not working. So you'd like to see people stop pointing the blame and start focusing on 
themselves and their own? Not so much themselves. I think we all have a vested interest, but just start focusing on the solution. What are solutions? The solutions is, one, the funding needs to be, I guess, allocated the right way. There is so, but I think our main issue is that housing, we don't have housing. You know, we have HOPWA, but, you know, in Atlanta, we're talking about what is HOPWA doing? You know, the people are still on the streets. People are still struggling. They have to go to three-quarter houses and stuff like that. Focus on becoming a part of a community advisory board, a CAB, you know, getting to know the science about medications and how to develop the phases, the clinical trials. You know, some are still stuck on the Tuskegee incident. You know, that was then. That's why we need CAB members, because that's a platform where we can say, oh, no, this is not right, or we can monitor and stuff like that. You know, focus on the solution of, you know, the psychosocial, you know, um, that folks do have other issues and uh, compound with living HIV and AIDS, you know, they probably need therapy. They need somebody that they can go talk to. Focus on drug addiction. Drug addiction is another disease, and it's, you know, say drug addiction, again, we're looking at stereotype and stuff like that, and drug is not just in the African-American community. <laughs> it's everywhere, you know. might be different kinds of concoctions, but it's still drugs. Let's focus on how to get folks help. And the real deal is you can't help them until they want to help themselves, but at least we need to let them know. That's why I'm a real, coming up from, I have 11 years clean and sober, that I'm a fan of harm reduction. Harm reduction works. It works. It stops you from harming yourself and stops you from harming a community. And it gives some people the opportunity to network. You know, every time you engage, every time you get with somebody, uh, every time you stop into a center, that's engaging. That's when you start building trust. A slow way of detoxing them, you know, is by letting them know that, one, that I'm here for you. Two, let's look at different ways of how you can safely use. Big controversy thing in Atlanta is harm reduction, you know. I am one of the few that do a workshop on harm reduction. Can you give a definition for harm reduction for our listeners? In a nutshell, harm reduction is continue to use, okay, and at the same time accepting where they are as they're using, but encouraging them to lessen the harm to themselves and to lessen the harm to the community. It's not about stop using. That's where it gets uh, twisted. It's not about stop using. It's not the end point of your recovery. Methadone is one of the successes. Might get hit in the head with that <laughs> as far as harm reduction. We practice harm reduction every day. When you get in your automobile, what's the first thing you do? Put on a seatbelt. That's harm reduction. When you get a hot cup of coffee from McDonald's, what's the first thing you do? You blow on it. You don't want to burn your mouth. <laughs> That's harm reduction. We practice it, so why can't we look at it in, in, in a bigger scale of just allowing folks to be where they are? Being in recovery and working a really good program, people are not ready until they're ready. You can beat yourself. But again, allowing them to come into a center, just giving them a cup of coffee and talking to them every day. It cuts down on them going in the streets, creating havoc, the more you engage them, the less emergency rooms that they would have to go through, you know. And then, you know, just because we're addicts doesn't mean that we're not intelligent. 
we just need for somebody to turn the switch on, <laughs> you know. And so once that switch, once you get a moment of clarity, you'll make that decision whether you want to, you know, completely stop or do what you need to do. Well, I think I could probably talk to you about your activism work and your views on this pretty much all day, but let's move back to your personal mm-hmm. life. How has your health been since your HIV diagnosis? My health has been up and down. And I think my biggest concern with my health is, is that, um, you know, my weight. I lose weight, you know, and then I gain it back, then I lose weight. And then that's another thing of being empowered. You know, I had to really take the necessary steps to get a nutritionist, start talking to the nutritionist, doing simple workouts that I can live with. I'm not going to go to the gym and try to look like Arnold Schwarzenegger or Lee Haney. <laughs> I'm just going to work out and just tone my body. I actually on my second regimen, which is really good. What are you on? Um, right now I'm on, on Kletra, Epivir, and Travada. And my first regiment was Pixivan, AZT, and 3TC. So after 11 years, I'm just on my second regiment. I am a strong believer in medication. I do know that um, people get some severe side effects and people get minor side effects. I haven't experienced any real bad side effects other than diarrhea from Kaletra. And that's going back to one of the things that I do uh, is be involved with the clinical trials and understanding the medications and how they're working in your bodies and stuff like that. So overall, my health is good. I work on my mind, body, and spirit. I think recovery has really helped me to get a really good balance. Why did you switch regimens? The reason why I switched regimens was, again, is being a treatment educator and understanding medications and stuff like that. When I started losing weight, I knew it was from, well, me and my doctor came to a decision it was from the Zerit. Again, side effects, lipodystrophy, lipoastrophy, you can have different side effects and stuff like that. But I was losing a lot of body mass, muscle mass, and on top of that, I was losing weight anyway. And so we tried to eliminate some of the things that we thought could be the cause of me losing the weight. And once I stopped that, once I changed the regiment, my weight is steady, so it was a good decision to change. And see, that's again the challenge. Medication does work and medication does fail. You can take your medication that 96% of the time that we're supposed to take it and it could fail. But the, the thing is to have a game plan. Look at what you can go to next. And early on we used to talk about sequencing where you can look at the way you want to take your medication. And So Molly, my doctor, and I knew what I was going to go on next. And right now we're looking at what we can go on you know, later on. That's why I changed. But some people do change because they can't tolerate it anymore. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, other than switching your medications, did you change your health regimen at all? Like vitamins or what you were doing? <laughs> yes, I am drinking, I, you know, going to talk to a, nutri- a nutritionist and everything. I had to really change the way I eat. I love fried foods. And I'm still going to eat fried foods, but I'm going to do it in moderation. But one of the things that we don't, talk about a lot in Atlanta is quality of life. And I truly strongly believe in quality of life. So I'm not going to completely stop something that, you know, I, I really like. I love some fried foods. But I do it in moderation. I drink more water. I eat breakfast now. Well, my breakfast is really simple. I have two slices of peanut butter toast with honey and some green tea. And that carries me. Whereas before, I would wait till 11 o'clock. I wouldn't eat anything. I've learned how to eat the pastas. You know, that nutritional pyramid is lighting up to me now. And I understand what to eat, what not to eat. So I think that's helped. 
And you mentioned before that you've never been on hepatitis C meds. Is that correct? Correct. And the reason behind that decision? Well, again, working closely with the doctor, I think we came to a decision, and I think it was more my decision, but she has allowed me to be where I'm at, is let's wait and see what my liver enzymes look like. You know, if I'm in a close to a danger zone, her game plan, what she would like to do is, being that everything is fine, I'm on my regimen, I'm studying on that, let's do the treatment now. Let's, you know, get the biopsy, and let's move on and start the treatment. Again, working as a team, you know, where she doesn't override me, (laughs) I'm like, well, if it's not a problem right now, I still want, again, quality of life. I still want to wait a little while longer. I don't want to go through the possibility of the depressions and stuff like that. I do not want to probably have to take some meds to compact the depression, trazodone or anything like that. Um, I'm not going to say it's going to trigger me in my recovery. Old cliche, if it's not broke, don't fix it right now. So I'm not, I'm not ready to fix it. It's, it's a little cracked. <laughs> no pun intended, but it's a little cracked, but I'm not ready to fix it right now. So has having hepatitis C changed your treatment and health regimens in any way? Again, when we was talking about sequence and looking at medications, we try to look at what's harsh on the liver. You know, I try not to do anything to, to jeopardize. And again, one good thing is that you know I don't drink or anything like that. I, I just know that being co-infected that I have to work, not work extra hard, I have to be a little more careful. So I really believe one day I would start it. More people now are dying from hepatitis C than HIV and AIDS. Now because of the medications and stuff like that, we are living longer. We're becoming senior citizens in this disease, you know, and so we're living longer, which lets the hepatitis C start. You start seeing signs maybe 10 years into the hepatitis C, so... I'm almost at that point. I understand that there are different types of hepatitis C. Do you know what type of hepatitis C you have? I have HIP2. If I believe the question, I'm honest in the question, I have HIP2. I think HIP2 is predominantly in African Americans. Because of that, the regiments are challenging and that a lot of them do fail. You know, that's another thing I looked at prior to when we were just talking about, do I want to start it and stuff like that. You mentioned that your doctor kind of chose you mm-hmm. <laughs> instead of you choosing her. Tell us a little bit more about that. Like I said, I was almost murdered. I was, I was in the emergency room. They finally got me to a floor and um, assigned me to a doctor. And this is so ironic. The doctor that was on call came in and I guess I was looking so bad and everything like that you know he said you know Mr. Burgess well I got some good news and some bad news you made it through the night but you got four months to live go and enjoy yourself at the time he was playing God I'll say this right now this particular doctor maybe five years in OD'd off of drugs but at the same time my primary care provider which was Molly Eaton she was in the room at that time and once she heard that information, when he walked out, she was like, he shouldn't have said that to you. She said, you know, we're all on call right now, but when you get out, please come see me after the Olympics, because the Olympics was going on. And we have a one-stop shop in Atlanta called Grady IDP, Infectious Disease Program, and that's where her office was. She is an infectious disease doctor. So I had a choice while I was laying in the bed waiting for the diagnosis for George Jr. and his mother. Uh, social worker Mary Lynn Hemphill came into my room, and that's why I have a lot of respect for social workers and love them, is that when she sat on my bed and she touched my feet. And when she touched my feet, 
I knew that things were going to be all right. Because you would have seen my feet back then. You wouldn't <laughs> and she said she's going to get me into drug treatment. And she got me into drug treatment. And I knew I was ready to quit using drugs because I could have went and used or I could have went to the drug treatment program. I went directly to the drug treatment program. And a month after that, the Olympics had ended. I went to my primary care provider. I became her patient. A week later, I started volunteering at Eight Survival Project. I met Dan Dunnable and Terry Wilder. A week later, I went to my first support group. That's why I said we need support, which is Common Ground, and I speak for Common Ground still, which is a daily support group where people that's infected come on a daily basis and get some education, get a good meal, but the primary thing is the network and let people know that you're not alone. So all those ingredients was right there. My combination, like I said, 1996 was the first, you know, cocktail, a triple combination. My combination was already there, the social worker, the doctor, the medication, the volunteerism, the support group, all of that started right there in that September of 96. So from June 17, 1996 to September, all of those ingredients were coming together. So I was ready. So this is the second time that you mentioned that you were almost killed? Yes. <laughs> what happened? <laughs> I was an IV drug user, and I made a stupid conscious decision that I would not start smoking crack. Some of my friends started smoking crack. And a drug is a drug is a drug, but what's different is, is that uh, with heroin, you can, you know, shoot up and you'll be fine for six hours or whatever. You know, with crack, is a repetitive thing. You have to do it over and over and over again, which takes up a lot of money. I was always a people pleaser, so one time I um, bought them some drugs, and I was walking away because I did what I, I had to do. Right? So when I was walking away, I heard them call me, and I turned around, and when I turned around, they hit me in the face with a two-by-four. Your off. friends? Yes. Well, I know today they're not my friends. They were just using people. They were just associates. I thought they were my friends. They knocked all my teeth out. I had a compound fracture on my elbow, punctured lung, one failed kidney. They left me to die. I had one tooth in my mouth. When I got to the hospital, they said, get the next of kin. He's not going to make it through the night. Simultaneously, the mother of my son, which I had already mistreated, not physically, but for my lifestyle of being an active addiction, abused her. She said a prayer. The power of prayer does work. And as she was praying, the doctor was saying his vital signs are changing. And I made it through that night. Now, I can't say I felt God, seen God, or heard God, but I felt the warmth, and I got better. I got better. That next morning, the doctor came in and said, you got four months to live, but I got better. You know, it was an amazing two months. But it was, you know, the, they say the, a healing process starts with pain. That night from the beating was much pain, but it was a healing process. And, um, and I'm still healing because it's 11 years later and I'm just in, I'm in awe of where I'm at. You know, I'm reading a book and it's called The Pursuit of Purpose. We walk around so many times trying to find out who we are. But in this book it talks about why are you? And I'm here to, because of HIV, I'm here to be of service. How did you get your money for drugs? Were you working? Uh, or? <laughs> <laughs> oh, 
Okay, I um, was an executive at a major company on 34th Street in New York. <laughs> I was a junior executive, and um, I started what I called white-collar crimes. Early on, they say that you hurt the ones that loved you. My grandmother, which raised me, had money. She was okay. And I faked three kidnappings, and she paid the ransom, and I used that money to buy drugs. I worked for Macy's for 18 years. I worked for Macy's for 18 years. Again, a functional addict. You know, I remember one time doing a board meeting, production meeting, and you had to go in the bathroom and use before I do anything. And I remember coming to the podium and doing this meeting, and I took off my blazer, and blood was still coming out of my arms. And I was oblivious to I thought I was saying some good stuff because they were saying ooh and ah, but they were looking at the blood coming out of my arms. So, you know, those are things that, one, I know I don't never want to return to. But I started doing the white-collar crimes, and uh, I can't say on tape. <laughs> but then, in 1996, Macy's had a private buyout. You know, I had already moved to Atlanta, and when they had the private buyout, I was one of the first ones to go. They knew they already had trouble with me. So I became homeless in the streets of Atlanta. I started going to the K-Marks, the Walmarks, even the Macy's and the Riches and doing shoplifting. And see, I was a smart shoplifter. I would get a smoke detector. I would take it in the parking lot. I would break the wire and take it back in and say it was defective. And they would have to give me my $36. And that's how much it cost me to have my wake-up shot. It cost me $36. Two bags of heroin, a bag of cocaine, a pint of wine, and some beer. And that was it. Every day? Every day. That was just the beginning. That was the start of the day. And the white-collar crimes are what landed you in jail? Actually, the petty, the the petty, petty crimes. crimes, you know, the petty crimes. I've never got caught or confessed <laughs> to the white-collar crimes. You know, I've made my amends in my own way, they say. you know. But, you know, I kept starting this petty thieving and stuff like that. And I went before the same judge four times. He said, you need another profession. You're, you're not a thief. <laughs> So that's how I wind up in jail. I've been to jail maybe four times. In jail, I've never been to prison. The longest I've been in jail is about two months. But even those were um, devastating to me. It was embarrassing to my family. But that was the end result. They say in recovery jails, institutions are deaf. I've been to institutions. I've been to jails. I haven't died. Well, I had a spiritual death going on. Um, but I hadn't physically died. And the last time you were in jail was when you found out that you were positive. Yes. That was the last time I was in jail. I, um, I, well, I didn't make the decision. Because when I did get out, I'm glad I was incarcerated that night in protective custody. When I did get out, my active addiction was really, really, it was really bad. I was trying to, you know, so I'm killing me slowly. I was trying to kill myself slowly. I wasn't, I was a coward. I wasn't going to jump off a bridge or nothing like that. So my addiction just took off. And then it took their point to the beating and stuff like that. So you mentioned your grandmother, and I know that you have children. How did you tell your family that you were HIV positive? When did you tell them how did they react? The first one I told was my dad. I told my dad, and my dad had no problem with it whatsoever. And again, they were still in New York, and I was in Atlanta. So I called my dad, and I told him... But even when I told him, it was in a manipulative way because I wanted him to feel sorry for me before he can send me some money before I can get high. Then I told my mother, and 
she was negative about it. She said some some really bad things. And again, now I know why she said the bad things, because of her own fears and because of not being educated about HIV and AIDS. And trust me now, we're the best of friends. We are the best of friends. She's my greatest supporter. When I did the show, or the Peter Jennings show, she was quite upset with something that came out with the context of that, but I already let her know that Peter Jennings had already died. He did not edit it. Somebody else edited it. But our relationship has really grown. But she did say some bad things. Then, you know, I trickled on down to my brother and my sister. And all of them were supportive. All of them were moms. And then it had to come to my children. Two of the oldest ones up here in New York I told first. And they were upset, but they were okay. They're like, Daddy, what we need to do? And remember, these are the kids that I abandoned. So we wasn't no relationship. They was just like, okay, let's circle the wagons. Daddy, what I need to do? And then Tiffany, which is my daughter, and George Jr., which is my children in Atlanta, I brought Tiffany to my office. I had already started volunteering or working at AIDS of Our Project, and she was like, okay, you know, you got ready to send me to college. I'm not, you know, what's all of this stuff, you know? And so I made my disclosure right there in my office at AIDS Survival Project. And George Jr., I just told him actually a year ago. He knew, you know, our children do know. But I sat down and just, you know, spoke to him. I mentioned it to him on a way, whereas I want him to not make some of the decisions or the choices that I've made. And really work on self-esteem issues because self-esteem issues, that's why I started really using whether I come from a bad family or an impoverished neighborhood, my self-esteem was low. And, you know, just try to educate him. So what is the best response you've gotten from someone after telling them you're HIV positive? Is there this one shining moment in your memory? Well, I, I didn't see the reaction, but again, from my dad. I think my dad was the best response. Son, I love you. You know, we'll get through this soldier to true to his heart. A soldier with compassion, whereas, you know, we'll get through the sun, you know, what we need to do with stuff like that. I have told people, I have disclosed to people and have gotten, you know, the big hug and the big kiss. Man, if I was to say something is that when someone does make a disclosure, we can tell if it's a sincere, compassionate hug or is it a, you know, Sometimes the response of when you tell somebody to disclose somebody and say, oh, I'm so sorry, I don't want you to be sorry. You know, you know, it's, 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 it actually wasn't your fault to be sorry. And I don't know if people say that because of lack of words and stuff like that. Just um, be supportive. But I went to a hospital health care situation and I had an ear infection. And I told the technician uh, was HIV positive. She went out of the room and came back with a glove and mask on. And then, you know, I questioned her about that because I had already started advocating for myself. She went out and a doctor came in with two pair of gloves and two masks on. So, <laughs> you know, it's like, okay, I, I'm not going to open my mouth because I want somebody to come in with a space suit on. <laughs> you know, just let me be quiet. <laughs> I guess just a few more final questions. How has your sex life changed since you were diagnosed? Have you had any sexual partners? My sex life is good. My sex life is really good. My fiance was HIV negative and I was positive. We learned how to enjoy sex, safer sex. 
the relationship, uh, we're not getting married, the engagement is off, and I, I've been honest for this whole hour and I will continue to be honest, is that we had some condom breakage, and from the condom breakage, we stopped having sex because of her fears really came out. Because of her fears came out, and because I was feeling some little rejection, I went and had an affair, and then I came back and told, <laughs> and it ended the engagement. But we're still living together. She is my, she is my caregiver. She is my friend. She is the first person I would go to if I was to have some physical challenges. And again, we're still living in the house together, which has challenged other relationships because they will not understand why is your ex still living in the house with you. <laughs> but to answer the question, I enjoy sex. I don't let, because I'm HIV positive, stop me from having sex. Again, quality of life. I've counseled people that say, oh, I'm not going to have sex anymore. I'm not going to have children anymore, which is a different kind of decision, but why? You know, do not let this disease stop you from doing things that you have the human right and the right to do. I try not to box myself in. I don't try to just be with ladies that's in recovery or HIV infected. If you are, if you're not, you're not. When we're talking about disclosure, I've learned how to tweak that a little bit because, again, I was like a poster boy. Hey, my name is George, and I'm positive, living and learning of age. Do you want to get together? And they're like, wait a minute, what's your name? <laughs> you know, so I'm, I'm, I'm later, I've learned and I counsel people how to disclose, you know, it's on a need-to-know basis. And dating is fun, and for me, just because I'm dating you doesn't mean that I want to sleep with you. So I don't have to disclose that. If it gets, you know, to that situation, I'll disclose. But two weeks after dating, you know, people always ask, you know, they use a survey. I know it's a, an assessment. What kind of job do you do? <laughs> so it always comes out, you know, well, I do this. Well, why do you do that? Well, this is why I do that. Any final thoughts? Because <laughs> we are almost out of time. I just hope that this information, one, would help somebody. Again, I don't want to ever say this is rhetoric. This is not a death sentence. We can live and learn with HIV and AIDS. I think, again, just to be supportive of one another. And always remember that the quality of life is the most important thing. That is because, you know, we are either infected or effective. But in order to be effective is to enjoy your life, educate other folks. I think one of my greatest quotes is from Martin Luther King. And he says, the beginning of the end of life is when you remain silent about the things that matter. HIV and AIDS still matter, so keep lifting your voice. Well, George, that's a great way, I think, to end this interview. Thank you so much for coming in and meeting with me. You're welcome. Thanks for listening to This Positive Life. For more podcasts and other first-person stories, please visit us online at thebody.com. If you'd like to share your story, please email us at podcast at thebody.com. The opinions expressed by hosts or interviewees in this podcast do not constitute professional advice, should not be considered substitutes for professional services, and do not necessarily represent the opinions of Body Health Resources Corporation or its sponsors. 
Please see the full disclaimer online at thebodypro.com. If you have comments or questions, please contact us.